always abounding in the work of the Lord. Notice that word always indicates that perseverance should become a habit. But we must realize just as standing strong and persevering can be a habit, so can quitting and giving up. And unfortunately today, many people have developed this negative habit of quitting. It's just part of their character. When times get tough, rather than fighting the good fight of faith, they just take the easy way out and quit. But friends, God has not given us the Holy Spirit so we could become quitters. Philippians 4.13 says, We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Who hasn't ever failed? Be persistent. God never promised us that our dreams were going to come to pass on the very first time. Abraham Lincoln went through 11 political defeats, a nervous breakdown, the loss of two of his children, and a severe depression all before he was elected president of the United States. See, he was determined. He had that never-say-die attitude. It's reported that Thomas Edison failed 32,000 times before he finally invented the phonograph. Can you imagine how tempted he must have been to give up after try number 1,000 or try number 10,000? What if on try number 31,999, he would have said, forget it, this thing's not going to work, I'm giving up. No, he would have missed out on God's best. And how many times do we allow the enemy to deceive us into giving up right before our dreams come to pass? to see so many people who are joining us here for the first time. If you're just coming for a first time here, we here at The Well like to say we are an ordinary place where extraordinary things happen, and never is that more true than today. As we kick off a new series called Fighting Failure, where hopefully we'll get a chance to have some fun, discuss some topics that apply to all of us, and maybe we might learn something in the process as well. But before we get into our topic, I want to ask you all a question which in case you ever appear on Jeopardy, you'll be prepared. What do these five individuals up on the screen have in common? And in case you don't know who the five individuals are, you got Mr. Walt Disney, you got Albert Einstein, Vincent Van Gogh, the great painter artist guy, Dr. Seuss coming underneath him, and then Thomas Edison. What do these guys have in common? Walt Disney, Albert Einstein, Vincent Van Gogh, Dr. Seuss, and Thomas Edison. All these guys, you'd be tempted to say, these are very successful individuals, right? So what all these people share in common is they're men of success. Well, let me tell you about these great men of success. Walt Disney. Before Disneyland took off, when he was trying to get the idea uh, financed and off the ground, did you know that D Walt Disney was rejected 302 times when he proposed the idea of Disneyland to people trying to get financing, 302 times he failed. Vincent Van Gogh, the famous artist, the man who has so many paintings and so many great things, do you know how many paintings Vincent Van Gogh sold in his lifetime? One. The other 800 or so he kept in his basement, and now the value of those is an incredible amount of money. One painting, his most famous one, or his most expensive one, is worth is valued at $142 million. But he failed to sell a single, or he sold just one other than that. Albert Einstein, great man, intellectual person, failed to be able to speak until age four. Was unable to utter his first word. Dr. Seuss, famous author of so many books, when he tried to release his first book, 27 times he was rejected by the publishers, and it was try number 28, and he made it. And then the last but not least, Thomas Edison, as you heard in there in the, the, the intro video right there. Thomas Edison, the man who invented so many things, including the light bulb. Do you know how many times Thomas Edison invented a light bulb that didn't work? 200 times. 200 times he said, this one, this is the one that's going to do the trick. And 200 times it failed. So what I would say what all these guys have in common is they're failures. Because they failed more than me and you combined. But what we're going to talk about here in this series, beginning today, is that failure is an inevitable part of success. In any field, failure is an inevitable part 
of success. I actually love what Thomas Edison said. He said something nice when he was talking about how he had failed 200 times in, in the light bulb before he, before he succeeded. He said, I, he said, in my mind, I never failed even once. I invented the light bulb, but it was a 200-step process to get there. I like that because that's the way that success works. It's failure plus failure plus failure plus failure leads to success, and the list goes on. Which war general in the Revolutionary War lost two-thirds of the battles that he fought? George Washington. Which United States president lost 11 out of the 13 elections that he ran for? Abraham Lincoln. Which European war hero finished 42nd in his class out of 43? Napoleon. And then he did a little thing called conquer the rest of Europe. And if you're into sports... Everyone knows the greatest baseball player of all time is Babe Ruth, who in 1935, when he retired, led the majors with the most home runs, 714, a record that stood for so many years until steroids came along. Okay, it stood for so many years. <laughs> but did you also know that when, Hank, when, when Babe Ruth retired in 1935, he not only led in home runs, but he also led the league in strikeouts. And he set a world record for that as well. Because failure is an inevitable part of any success. If you are not failing at something, you are probably not trying anything. And the same is true spiritually. And that's why we're kicking off a series here today called Fighting Failure. Because usually what we do in churches across America is we talk about how to be successful. And we stand up here and we say, to be good, do this. And do this and do this and then you'll be good. But most of us, our experience is not at being good. It's actually at being bad. So what do we do when we're bad? Like I come up here and I can read you a bunch of Bible verses that say how good you're supposed to be. But what happens when we're not good? What happens when we fail? What happens when we talk about how important it is to be pure and we're not pure? What happens when we talk about how faith is the most important thing and then we have doubts? What happens when we talk about the hope we have in Christ and then we go home and we struggle with despair and depression? And we talk about the freedom and grace, but then we struggle with guilt and shame. What happens when we fail? What do we do? Well, I'll say this. Just as with those individuals, you will discover that spiritually, failure is a necessary part of success in the spiritual life as well. The Proverbs, chapter 24, verse 16, says that a righteous man will fall seven times, but he will rise again. And that's what this series is all about. This series is not about not failing. This series is about what to do when we fail. Not if we fail, but when we fail. How do we rise up and not let our failure define us, but let our response to failure define us? Now, before we get too far into this, you're sitting there and you're thinking, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, you, Father Anthony, what are you going to tell us about failure? You say, you stand up there on that stage. What are you going to tell us about failure? You don't know my life. You don't know my problems. you got a perfect life. That perfect family. You always know all the verses. <laughs> you got a perfect life. What are you possibly going to tell me when it comes to failure? Well, I'll tell you this. And I've told you all this before. Just because I appear to have it all together doesn't mean I got it all together. Just means maybe I'm pretty good at acting. Just like maybe you're pretty good at giving your parents that you got it all together too. See, we're all actors in this, and I'm going to prove it to you. Raise your hand. If you have never, ever, actually, no, we're going to do the opposite because we need to be awake today. It's friends and families today. I need everyone to participate, okay? Not if you've never failed. Raise your hand if you have failed. And let me try to be a little more clear with that. Let's say not failed in life, not a failure. Let's say in this year, 2015, if you have failed, keep raising your hand. If you failed at a test, failed at a relationship, failed at a promise that you have made, okay, and not kept, failed at a New Year's resolution. New Year's was just a few months ago. Raise your hand if you failed in any capacity at all during 2015. Raise your hand nice and high. Okay, now everybody look around and see how many people's hands are up and see who's a liar by not putting their hands up, okay? <laughs> now, keep your hands up. Keep your hands up. Now, all these people whose hands are up are people that have failed, and I got both mine up too. Now, keep your hand up if you love talking about those failures, if you love sharing about it and on job interviews and you talk about it when you go out to coffee with people and on Friends and Family Day, you write your failure on your name tag, okay? <laughs> Look around. All the hands that are up are now down. Just because we don't talk about failures doesn't mean we don't have them. It just means we don't talk about them. But you know what I discovered 
even though what we usually talk about is our success, what we prefer to listen to is failures. We like hearing stories of failure, especially from people that we admire because it gives us hope. Example, which would you prefer? Here I am, I'm Father Anthony. Would you rather me stand up here and spend the next 45 minutes telling you about how good I am at prayer and how I can pray for hours unlike you, you heathen, you pagan? <laughs> you want me to sit here and tell you how good my prayer life is or do you want me to tell you the truth that I struggle just like you to pray for one minute when my phone is anywhere in the vicinity? And I struggle because somehow my phone is in my pocket I can't hear. But if I'm praying and that phone is all the way across the house, I can hear the slightest vibration and that distracts me from praying. Which story would you rather hear? Would you rather hear me tell you a story about how disciplined I am when it comes to my eating habits? Or you want me to tell you the truth? That I try to distract my daughter so I can eat her brownies when she turns her back. <laughs> Watch this one. Parents, you want to hear me tell stories about how well-behaved my children are <laughs> and how they're so obedient and they're so good? Or you, like me, like me, when you walk into that Wegmans and you see that preacher man over there and you see his, having, his kids having a temper tantrum, inside you smile. <laughs> that he's got normal people problems just like the rest of us. Some people think, here I am, I'm the great preacher man. I give sermons, and I'm so good at sermons, and never failed sermon. Well, let me tell you about a sermon fail that I did one time, and I'm sure some people here were even present. It's probably six, seven years ago, something like that. One time I decided, in front of a large audience just like this, broadcast over the internet, to give an entire sermon on the topic of joy. And you say, it's a good topic. And while I was giving the topic of joy, I decided, I don't know why, I don't really do this very often, but I decided this time, I was going to introduce the Greek word for joy, and the Greek word for joy, lo and behold, sounds very similar to an Arabic word, which I cannot say here on stage because it's a bad word. I'll just say it has four letters, and it's something that goes in the toilet. And I mispronounced the Greek word and made it sound awfully like that Arabic word. And not only did I say it once, twice, three, four, five times, Somehow, I saw the people's reaction, so I said, hey, say it with me. <laughs> and all the people, the majority of them, knew what I was talking about, so they, hey, say it. And then I was like, no, you in the back, you're not saying it. Say it like you mean it, is what I said. And everyone, yeah. <laughs> That's what's called sermon fail. <laughs> the Greek word, by the way, is charak. That's the proper pronunciation, but if you <laughs> emphasize the wrong word, you have a sermon fail if you emphasize the wrong part of that. Anyway, my point is this. God, here's our theme, our main message of this series, is that God wants to work through your mistakes and shortcoming, not in spite of them. God wants to work through your mistakes, your failures, your shortcomings, your weaknesses, not in spite of them. God doesn't see your failure as a, uh, again. God doesn't see your failure as something that stops his ability to use you. In fact, what we are going to see in this series, because every week we're going to look at different failures, different great people who failed God royally. We're going to see that God will use us and as he used them, not in spite of our failure, but actually he will use our failure and he will work through those things. Our theme verse is going to be this from Luke chapter 5, verse 31, which shows you about God's view of us and our failure. Scripture says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. God said, I came as a doctor. I didn't come as a judge. I didn't come to judge you. I came to heal you. So if you have no failure, you have no need of me. The only one who expects you to be perfect is you. The only one, let me say it in a better way. The only one who is shocked when you fail is you. Nobody else is. And you don't believe me? Go take a survey. Go ask your coworkers if they think you're perfect. I'm <laughs> if you're a supervisor, go ask the people under you if they think you're perfect. No one expects you to be perfect. No, one no one's fooled by it except you. As much as we hate to talk about failure, the good news is God does not. And God, in his book, 
in the Bible does not hide the failures of the great men and women who came before us. Moses was a great man. Oh, but he was also a murderer. David was a great man, but he was an adulterer. Solomon was a wise man, but he was actually the dumbest of them all because he worshipped them dumb idols. St. Paul wrote all half the New Testament, but he persecuted more Christians than anybody else before he became a Christian himself. Even the great Noah himself, the righteous man, one time got drunk, lost all his clothes, and found himself in a very precarious situation. But those failures do not define those individuals. No one would say that Saul, or let's say that Paul is defined by his failure. Paul is defined by his response to his failure, as is Noah, as is David, as is Moses. And so too will you and I be when we understand how God wants us to view our failure and respond to that failure. Every week in the series, we're going to look at a different character in the Bible who failed. And we're going to see a different tactic that failure, we're going to treat failure like our enemy. And failure comes at us every week and hits us with a different, whether it's doubt or whether it's discouragement or whether it is uh, despair. Failure comes at us and beats us down. And every week we're going to see a different character who failed and how they responded to that failure. Today we're going to start with an easy one, kind of a general failure. One of the most well-known characters in the scripture who's actually not even really a character because he's come from a parable. It was the story of the prodigal son. Everybody knows this story. Even people who don't know the Bible know the story of the prodigal son. A man with two sons, one of them went astray, and he failed. And in his story of failure, we see that failure doesn't need to define us. But our response to failure is what defines us. We'll pick up the story in Luke chapter 15. Again, it's not a real story. It's a parable that Jesus told, which is like a story with a meaning. Jesus said, Luke 15, 11, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he, the father, divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. Let's stop right there. The son comes to the father and says to him what? Says to him, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. You may say, that doesn't seem like that big a deal. Like, I ask my parents for money all the time. What's the big deal? This is a big deal. Because he's not just asking his parents for a loan. He's not just asking his dad to help him out in a tough time. He's asking for what money? His inheritance money. What is implied when I go to my father and say, I want my inheritance money now? What is, the inheritance money comes when? When he dies. So when I come to my father, I say, I want my inheritance money now. It's in essence saying, I'm sick and tired of waiting for you to die. I cannot wait any longer. And if you go read commentary about this, about this, what would happen, okay, in this situation where a son would come to his father and ask for his inheritance like this? This is equivalent to spitting in his father's face. This actually, you can't read what would happen, like, what would a father do if a son really did this? You can't read that. You know why? Because every Bible scholar says it will never, ever happen. Because the son who would even imply that would be beaten on the spot. Would be beaten on the spot. Would be beaten by the father, the father's servants, the rest of the family. There's no such thing as a son who comes to his father, spits in his face, and says, give me my money. I'm I've been waiting for you to die for the past five years, and you won't die. Give me my money right now. That's in essence what the son did. It doesn't get much more fail than that. It doesn't get much more, you disappointed your dad than that. Can it get worse? It get worse. Verse 14. But when he had spent all, so not only did he ask for the money, but he wasted the money on top of that. He spent all. There arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. Watch this part right here. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate. And no one gave him anything. See, we, miss, we misread this parable. So often we say that the, the prodigal son was in such a bad state, he was eating pig food. He was not eating pig food. What does the scripture say? Was he eating pig food? No. 
He was yearning for pig food. He wasn't eating pig food. Like eating pig food, like I don't make that as if it's like, like eating pig food. He wasn't eating pig food. He was yearning for it. Like, here comes Porky. Porky, please give me a piece. Can I have it? Porky said, no, get your own, man. And the pig's all laughing at him. Does it get any lower than where the son finds himself now? What do you think is going through the son's mind? As he is not eating pig food, but dreaming of eating pig food. Like one day, I'm having enough money, pig food. What's going through his mind? What's he thinking? I messed up. I'm a bad person. And he's got evidence in front of him to say, you are the dumbest person in the world. You're not dumb. You're the number one most dumbest person in the world. This prodigal son, in his mind, is I'm a failure. I can never amount to anything. I wasted it. Nothing good can ever come from me. You know those thoughts, don't you? He's not alone in those thoughts. He's not the only one who thinks I'm bad. He's not the only one who thinks I've wasted a golden opportunity. He's not the only one who thinks I've messed up so badly that nothing good can come from my life. Is he the only one? Well, I'll tell you this, that whether you admit it or don't admit it, I'll admit it. I share some of these thoughts sometimes. I know exactly how he feels. Because let's just take one simple area, one area which you may not realize, but I stand up here and I give sermons. And so many people come to me and say, you give the best sermons. Say, I'm here to visit because I heard your sermon. Your sermons are the best. And that's the best thing in the whole wide world. I say, thank you very much. And I get lots of compliments on my sermons. But I don't always get compliments on my sermons. And even forget about compliments. I know when sometimes I don't give a good sermon. I know it. And I know sometimes when you mean it and sometimes you're just like politely like, eh, good. <laughs> you, know how, you know how when you go, you know when you go for your review at work and your boss gives you like 27 positive things and then one growth opportunity, <laughs> right? Growth opportunity. And 27 positive things. But you don't remember any of those 27 things. All you're thinking about is that one growth opportunity. I do the same thing. I can stand up here for 27 weeks in a row and give the best sermon in the whole wide world. And week 28, I know I gave a clunker, and that's all I'm thinking about. And I'm kicking myself. And most people would say, one out of 28 is not bad. But in my mind, I didn't, I didn't prepare hard enough. I didn't pray hard enough. I, 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 sh I, I should have rested more on Saturday. Like, I, why did I stay out so late on Saturday? Why wouldn't I focus? Why didn't... And I'm kicking myself, and I'm not a good priest, and I'm not a good preacher, and I'm the worst person in the whole wide world, and I let people down, and someone came to church this first Sunday, and I'm a year or 10 years, and they hate God because of me, and I'm the worst person. And I feel like that sometimes. I feel like sometimes I'm not adequate as a father to my children. I feel that a lot, actually, that I'm not good enough as a dad, that I let them down. I feel like sometimes I let my wife down, that I'm not enough when it comes to what she needs as a husband. I know for certain I let God down all the time. And many times that I, you see up here, I'm perfect, whatever it is. Many times I stand in front of God and I can't even stand. I fall to my knees and say, I'm the worst person in the world. Yeah, I, again, I hide it from you just like you hide it from me. But don't, 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 don't fall for what, what's hidden, for what's, what's up here. We all know what it's like to feel like a failure. And this prodigal son, why I love his story is because you cannot be worse than this. As bad as you may be, as bad as I may be, I can say pretty safely, I ain't that bad. I ain't failed as bad as this guy. And if God can use him and the Father can welcome him back, which we'll see in a minute, then maybe there's hope for me too. I said in the beginning, our theme is God does not want to use you in spite of your mistakes. He wants to work through your mistakes and through your shortcomings because no failure can negate the power and the promise of God. But the key, as we'll see in a minute with the prodigal son, is how do you respond to failure? The key isn't whether or not you get knocked down. All of us will be knocked down. And my guess is that many people who are here today right now are kind of woozy and on the floor and getting that standing eight count. And they're getting counted and they don't know if they're going to be able to get back up. Well, I'm telling you, that what you do when you get knocked down will define you 
more than what you do when you're standing. Because it's not our success that determines our character in life. It's how we respond to our failures, but we must respond the proper way. How do we usually respond to failure? How do we usually respond when we feel bad about ourselves, when we feel like I'm no good and I'm bad and I've let people down? How do we usually respond? We all want the same thing. We want anesthesia. We want something to numb it. And we, as a society, are the most, I don't know what the proper verb is, of anesthesia society ever. And I'll prove it to you. Because I'm going to give you some facts about our society that you may not know. We are the most overweight, the most in debt, the most addicted, and the most medicated society in the history of the world ever. There's never been a society that struggles with obesity, that struggles with debt, that struggles with addiction, and that is more medicated than we are today in the United States of America. And what are all these four things? They're all proof that we are looking for some anesthesia just to numb the pain. I feel bad about myself. I'm a failure. I'm no good. So go to the bar, kick back a few beers, pick up a box of Krispy Kremes on the way home. Feel better about myself. Makes the pain go away just for a night. Or go shopping. Somehow, this one I don't get, but people tell me that somehow they feel better when they're shopping. I don't get it. But we go shopping. Why? Because we feel bad. And we just need to feel good about ourselves. But this stuff doesn't solve the problem. Numbing the pain doesn't make the pain go away. It only makes it that much more worse when we wake up. What did the prodigal son do when he was down and he looked like he was out for the count? Next verse. Watch here. Watch here, fighter, man of God. Watch what he does. He's down for the count. He's seven, eight, and at the nine count, at the nine and a half, look what happens. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough in despair, and I perish with hunger? Exclamation mark. Meaning like, what am I doing? I am dumb. Why am I down here yearning for pig food when my father's house has so much good food? I will arise, and I will go to my father, and I will say this. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. Boom is what I want to say. Boom is what I want to say because that what this guy did, he's down, and they're counting, and another victory for failure. Failure, another one bites the dust. Throw him away. Throw him away into despair. Throw him away into shame and guilt, and he's done. And he said, I ain't done yet. And he picked himself up, and he said, let's fight. But he didn't fight by numbing. He fought by, by, by coming to himself and saying what he said right there. Let's translate this to what that means for us. When he said, he came to himself, and he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough in despair, and I perish with hunger. Let's translate that into something actionable for me and you. What did he do? What was the key step when he came to himself, that he picked himself up, and he started fighting again? It is this, most important thing that you will take away from what I say today. He realized who he was. He realized who he was. He woke up, and he realized, he looked in the mirror, and said, I am not a pig food yearner guy. I am not a poor person. I am not a beggar. I am not a bad person. I am the son of a very rich father. And my rich father has bred enough in despair, and I'm his son. Because everything that failure was telling him is, you are no longer his son. You have lost that right. You threw it away. You don't deserve to be his son anymore. You're too bad. You wasted that. And he said, he was believing it and believing it and believing it. And finally he said, you, I am not believing that anymore. I am son of a rich king. And I will go to my father. And I will say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. And that realization changed everything. That realization changed everything. Someone sent me a video recently about a researcher who researches and studies the topic of shame. You didn't know that was a topic that you can study, did you? But someone studied the topic of shame and about how we human beings deal with shame and what is shame and how shame works and how to get out of shame. And there's this whole research field about shame. Her name is Brené Brown. Okay, and I actually wanted to show the video to get some of the clips, but I didn't show the video because she, she's not Christian, or I don't know what she is, but it's, it's not a Christian's talk. 
she used some not nice language. She used the, the, the Greek word for joy, okay, but in English, okay. <laughs> She's all about joy, okay, so. So let me just summarize what she said, okay, without getting into specifics. Some quotes, okay, and, and some of it may not seem like it's relevant, but watch, follow me here. She's talking about connection, okay, connecting with one another. And she says, quote, connection is why we're all here. It is what gives purpose and meaning to our lives. What gives people worth and happiness is a sense of connectedness. This is, this is good with us. This is what we know from the scriptures. Jesus told us this, that life is not about accomplishment. Life is about relationship. And when we feel connected in relationship, we feel good and we feel disconnected, we feel bad. And we know that it's not just this level of relationship, it's this level as well. So that's what she's saying. The whole point of humanity is to feel connected with God. Well, she didn't say God, but I'm adding that. With God and connected with one another. She goes on. Shame is the fear of disconnection. Shame is the fear of disconnection. And she explains that shame is the fear that if people knew certain things about me, they wouldn't want to be my friend or I would be unworthy of their connection. That's her exact words. It would make me unworthy of connection. That's what shame is. Shame is that if you knew this about me, then we couldn't be friends anymore. So shame keeps me hiding and shame keeps me I don't want anyone to know this because shame is a fear of if you, if I was exposed, there would be disconnection and disconnection leads to lack of happiness. This is where many of us find ourselves today in our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. Fear that if people really knew, if people found out that God, I'm not good enough. Fear that if God somehow, like as if God doesn't know, but we have this idea that as long as we act Christian, okay, then everything is okay in front of God and God doesn't really see anything behind that. So we have this fear that, you know what, I made this promise to God and I'm going to keep it this time, but then I broke it. God won't want me back. Or fear that, you know, I, I, God does not want me to do this and if I do this one more time, then I'll never be acceptable in front of God. This fear that if people really knew who I was, that I wouldn't be worthy of connection. And you know what happens when you have this fear, when you have this shame, with that fear that if you discover me, that you won't want to be my friend. What happens is I naturally, when I have that fear, I pull away. I disconnect. And then it becomes a vicious cycle. Because the more I disconnect, the more I'm validating in my mind, I'm not worthy of connection. And a shame cycle just continues gets worse and worse and worse and worse. Prodigal son was in this cycle. He did bad actions, can't go back, but because I can't go back, I might as well do bad actions. And it's a vicious cycle. I'm not worthy of connection, so therefore I behave this way. And because I behave this way, I'm not worthy of connection. And that's where the prodigal son found himself. But he was able to snap out of it. And he was able to say to himself that yes, I have failed, but I am not a failure. And what I want you to see, the most important thing with the prodigal son that you see here is nothing in his circumstances changed. When it says he came to himself, it's not like all of a sudden everything was fine. Nothing changed outside him, but his mindset changed. And that's why I say what me and you, our mindset, that's something that we can control. We don't think we can, but we can. And when we control, our, when we change our mindset, it will change everything. Dr. Brown goes on, and she in her study talks about, she divided, again, talking about shame, and she divided people into two groups. This group who felt like excessive shame and felt like they're not worthy of connection, and they felt like they don't have any connection in life, and then this group of people who feel very connected and very loved, and they felt a sense of belonging. And what she said was very profound about the difference between those two groups. I'll say it, and then I'll explain it. What's the difference between the people who feel connected and loved, and the people who don't feel connected and loved. This group feels connection. This group feels disconnection. What's the difference? Their circumstances, their background, their upbringing. What's the difference? Only one difference. She says, quote, there's only one difference between those who have a sense of connection and love and belonging and those who don't. Those who have connection believe that they're worthy of it. And those who don't have connection believe that they're not worthy of it. 
That's the only difference. That is huge. That is enormous. Because what that says is, in other words, the only difference between the people who feel connected and feel loved and feel belonging, whether it's with God or with man, that um, applies in both, versus this people who feels isolated and feels disconnected, the only difference is in here. The only difference is in here. That this group of people says, I'm worthy of love. So they feel loved and they connect with people. And this group says, I'm not worthy of love. And as long as they believe they're not worthy of love, they will continue to pull away from relationships, whether it's with God or with man, and it continue to feed this vicious cycle. That's the only difference. It's in here. It's not out here. Let me translate that for you spiritually. God's love for you. God's love for you is only as big as your faith in it is. God's love for you is only as big as your ability to believe in it. If you walk out of this room and say, God cannot love me more than this, then how big will God's love be in your life is this. If you say, God's grace, I am so bad, I can never have more grace than this, then you will never find more grace than this. But the one who says, like the prodigal son, God's love for me is big, 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 bigger than big. That's the one who will be swimming in an ocean of God's love today. Go back to the prodigal son. Beginning of the story versus end of the story. Beginning of the story, he felt ashamed. He felt like my father hates my guts. Can't go back to him. End of the story, he felt the father's love. Logic. Did the father's love change from the beginning to the end? Did the father, like, grow in his love, like, after the boy spit in his face, he increased his love towards him? Yes, I love you more now. Is that what happened? At the beginning of the story, the boy felt no love. He felt no connection, no reason to stay. <laughs> spit in his father's face. At the end of the story, he feels so much love. Did the love change? Did it change? No, it didn't change. His perception of it changed. His realization of it changed. I tell you what, at the beginning of the story, if the father didn't love the son immensely, like I said, he'd have beaten that son silly. He certainly wouldn't have given him the money. He'd give him a kick in the pants, maybe. He wouldn't have given him the money. So watch this. Your problem, you who struggle with shame, your problem and my problem is not that you're not worthy of God's love. Your problem is that you don't believe that you're worthy of God's love. And there's a big difference. Your problem isn't that you're not worthy of God's love. Your problem is that you don't believe that you're worthy of God's love. It's all in your mind. And again, does this confirm what the scriptures say? Absolutely. Because the scriptures say in Proverbs 23, I didn't bring it up on the screen, that as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. As a man believes about himself in his heart, so is he. Scripture also tells us in Romans chapter 12 that we will be transformed when we renew our minds. It's all in your mind. Again, you sit there and say, because someone told me this recently. I was sharing kind of some of the principles of this with someone, and someone said, you know, Father Anthony, you know what? You just, you've been blessed. You have good self-esteem. You're good at this. Like, God gave you good self-esteem. It's easy for you to believe that you're good. It's easy to, for you to believe in God's love. Just God made you different than the rest of us. And I say, that's a cop-out. That's a cop-out. If that's what you're thinking, that's a cop-out. Because this has nothing to do with self-esteem. This has nothing to do with self-esteem. This has everything to do with who is the, the, the authority in your life. Who you listen to. And I say that I defeat failure by trusting in God's word more than my own thoughts. Had nothing to do with self-esteem. And that's a cop-out to say, some people have good self-esteem, I don't. That's a cop-out. The truth of the matter is, God's word says one thing, your thoughts say another, who's the authority in your life? And if I have the ability to feel good about myself despite my failure and pick myself up, then it's not because I have good self-esteem, it's because I have made a decision that God's word is higher than anything else in this world. And if you tell me I'm bad, but God's word tells me I'm good, I'm going to go with God's word. 
And if you tell me, if God's word says I am precious and I'm valuable and the world tells me I'm worthless, I'm going with God's word because that's the authority in my life. And if you make God's word the authority in your life, you'll experience the same thing. I always make a distinction between two ideas, reality and truth. What's the difference between reality and truth? Reality is what we see, but truth is what we know. So reality is what's in front of our eyes. I have failed. That's reality. I'm a failure. I'm sorry, I have failed. That's a reality. But truth is that I'm not a failure. That I'm loved even though I failed. Reality says that I'm not good. But truth says I am eternally good and infinitely good because the one who is in me is eternally and infinitely good. Reality says you can't win this battle. Truth says you can't lose as long as you stick with me. See the difference between reality and truth? Reality and truth are not contrary to one another. Truth is not, is not opposed to reality. Truth completes reality. Reality is in front of us what I see, and truth says, okay, but let me tell you what you don't see. You see that you failed. I see that God knew you were going to fail and still says, I love you anyway. See the difference? Who you choose to trust, reality or truth? Give you some nice verses on what truth is. Jeremiah 31, verse 3. Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. The context of this, sometimes we miss the value and the significance of scripture verses because we don't understand the context. Who is this verse being spoken to? Is this verse Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah? Anyone know what Jeremiah's like nickname was? He was called the weeping prophet or the wailing prophet because Jeremiah preached at a time where the people were horrible, miserable, so bad, and he would just go around saying destruction, and God is going to destroy you because you all won't obey. And the people during the time of Jeremiah were as low a place as you can imagine. And eventually they were taken captive by the bad guy. But look what God says. He's not saying you haven't failed. Because the first 30 chapters of Jeremiah was, y'all failed. Y'all are miserable. Y'all the worst. Can't stand y'all. But then look at 31 verse 3. Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. Again, I will build you, and you shall be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. See, you shall be rebuilt, because y'all are destroyed, and I'm going to destroy you, but I'm going to rebuild you. You shall again be adorned with tambourines. You shall go forth in the dances of those who rejoice. This might be a good verse. Circle this one. Keep in front of your, like, this might be a good one to remind us of truth, despite the reality that is in front of all of our eyes. Another passage. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, you say, I'm bad. I failed. I got problems. I got big problems. I say, yes, you got big problems, but you got an even bigger father. You got big problems, but you got an even bigger solution to your problems because God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, reality, still sinners, truth, Christ died for us. Reality says we were sinners. Truth says Christ died for sinners. You see how this works? We need to get better at that. We need to get better at when reality comes here that I shove truth in its face. That's why I tell people this all the time. Some people think I'm crazy. Some people tell me they got this problem and they're struggling with this. And I say, do you read your Bible? They're like, Father, anything? now's not the time for Bible. Someone's in, in the hospital and sick or someone is about to die. I'm like, mm, did you read your Bible? Like, what does Bible have to do with anything? You know what Bible has to do with anything? Because the Bible is the source of truth. And if all you are doing is looking at reality without truth to combat it, you got no shot. I'm telling you, you got no shot. I'm telling you, Stop coming to church. You got no shot. You got no shot because reality will beat you down. But truth picks you up. Reality says, prodigal son, you do not deserve the father. Is reality right? Let me ask you a question. Does the son deserve to go back to the father? Does he deserve it? Depends who you ask. Depends who you ask. If you ask reality, reality says no. If you ask truth, whoop, and he arose, Luke 15, verse 20. Let's ask the father. Let's ask the father who represents truth here. Does he deserve to come back? See what the father says. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him, had compassion, ran, 
and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That's reality, not worthy to be called your son. Father doesn't even listen to him, doesn't address him, doesn't say no, 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 no. The father ignored everything that he said. And it says this, the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to be merry. Reality, not worth it. Not deserve it. Truth, bring the robe, bring the ring, bring the calf, bring the party. Let's celebrate. Question is, which of those two is a stronger influence in your life? And that's not a self-esteem thing. That's a decision. It's a decision that you need to make today that says, I will listen to the authority of the scripture, even though everything in my head says the opposite. When God says I'm precious and my thoughts say I'm worthless, I will trust what God says, not my own thoughts. That ain't self-esteem. That's a decision that each one of us can make. Give you another nice passage here of scripture from Isaiah 43. I'm just going to read it. It's such a good passage. I'm telling you, my greatest struggle for today, the hardest part of my job preparing here today was which verses to put on your hand. I... I could have printed like a booklet today of verses. That's, but there's just so many beautiful verses that tell you who you are, and you listen to these dumb thoughts in your head that tell you a failure. So, read the scriptures and let them tell you who you really are. Isaiah 43. But now, thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel. Put your name in there. Oh, whatever your name is. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. Ugh. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Since you, this is my favorite part, since you were precious in my sight, you have been honored. Not just I love you and you can live with me, but I honor you. Ah, and I have loved you. Therefore, I will give men for you, people for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, I have formed him. Yes, I have made him. Now you're going to come and tell me, I don't think God loves me. I'm bad. God gives me my identity. To many of us, honestly, now it's not even a matter of our own self-esteem. It's not a matter of failure. It's a matter of respect. A lot of us are extremely rude to God. We are disrespectful because God tells us A, devil tells us B, and we say, sorry, God, you're wrong because he said this, or you're wrong because I think this. Like, that is not a matter of, of, of shame. That's a matter of just being respectful. Who are you going to listen to the next time you have failed? Who are you going to put your trust in? Yourself? Your own thoughts, the enemy, or put it in the one who's proven that he knows what he's talking about. Leave you with this thought. Stop telling God who you are and start listening to what he says instead. Can we do that? Can we make an agreement here today? Like a treaty of stupidity. That's what we're going to do. We're called the Treaty of Stupidity, which is going to walk out of here and say, I am not the smartest person in the world. I'm not the smartest person in the world. So therefore, even if I'm really convinced that, if God says otherwise, I'm stupid. He's smart. I will shut up. I will listen to what he says. I will not tell him to shut up. I will tell myself to shut up. I will tell the devil to shut up. I will tell those failure thoughts to shut up but I will not tell God to shut up. I will listen to what God says. Because in the end, no matter what God thinks about you, if you don't believe it, you will never, ever experience it. God says to you today, you are special, you are precious, not because of who you are, but because who I am, and I called you by my name. My children 
are special because they have my name. And whether you like them or don't like them, they're my kids. They have my name. They have worthy of every good thing in this universe because they have my name. I put my name on them. They're special because of that. You go into the baby hospital and you see a bazillion babies. They all look the same. And no one can tell them apart. But this one that has my, maybe you can tell them apart. But this one who has my name is the most important one because he has my name. And therefore he is special and he's worthy of this entire kingdom because he has my name. Well, that's what God says about you. And if God puts his name on you, then I don't care what you think about yourself. God says you're precious. God says you're valuable question is, will you believe it or not? Let's stand together for a prayer, please. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, we thank you. Thank you, Lord, for loving us when we're so unlovable sometimes. And we thank you because you always reach out your hand to pick us up when we're not just down, but like in the lowest of lowest places. Lord, I pray that this series would be like an enlightening for us, would be like a pick-me-up for those who are in so desperate need of it. You know, Lord, who's coming here today, who's in, in a bad situation, like buried in a pit, shame and despair and guilt. You know, Lord, who is discouraged and disappointed and is struggling, Lord, to keep their faith. I pray, Lord, you would... Help us to listen to what you say, to keep your word close to our minds, close to our ears, close to our hearts, and the faith to believe what you say when everything else is telling us otherwise. Lord, we know it won't be easy, but we know that you will help us, Lord, because you have promised us that you, call, you called us by your name, and you will walk with us no matter where we go. Accept our prayers this day in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, with the prayers of all your saints. Hear us, Lord, as we pray together, thankfully, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.